Well, turn to John 17. It's a section we began last week, and we will continue on for a couple more weeks. If you need a Bible or under the chairs in front of you, our teaching style here is just to try to walk verse by verse. And so even if you're perhaps not a Christian, but you're here with somebody else, or you're relatively new, you're encouraged to, yeah, grab one of those Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, open to page uh, 1081, that's where you'd find John 17, and in a moment I'll start reading. This is the time of year where parents are dropping kids off to school for the first time. And so you think of that whole gamut and the, the fear that can sometimes pop up, probably more for the parents than for the kid, right? But think of parents dropping their first kindergartner off at school and, and they see them walk in the door and like the backpack eclipses the child because it's so big, right? And they walk in and every parent who's been through that knows that, that fear, or maybe it's fast-forwarding a little bit, and it's a kid moving from elementary school to middle school. And that fear kind of comes up again because, because they still look like a little child, and yet they're surrounded by eighth graders with, like, body odor and hair. And it's like, this is a little child, and now they're around these young adults, and there's another type of fear that comes up. It's dropping them off at high school, or for many in this room, even, uh, sending them away to college. Uh, many of you freshman here unaware that your parents are weeping at home, right, as, as they are missing you. And perhaps there's some fear underneath the surface. Parents wrestle with questions like, what will happen to them? Who will protect them? What will their friends be like? Who will have a loud voice in their life? They, they wonder, you know, when, I was, when they're with me, I can protect them. But when they're out of my presence... Who, who will protect them? Jesus displays a similar concern here in John 17. Of course, not with the type of sinful human fear that parents may be experiencing in an extreme sense, but, but an understandable sense of concern as Jesus has been with his disciples, he's been investing in them, teaching them. Three years, but then that whole night in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, leading up to this prayer, and now he's about to go away. That's what he says. He's about to go away to the Father. He's, he's on the edge of his arrest and trial and crucifixion. And he pauses to pray. In, in his longest recorded prayer, this last prayer, unless you're counting the words on the cross, and he prays for his disciples and then by extension for you. If you weren't here last week, one of the points we made is that this prayer is specifically for his disciples, but then he explodes it out and he says, I'm, gonna pr I'm praying not just for them, but for all who will believe in me through their words. So if you have believed in Jesus through their words, he was praying for you. And what he prays here, he was praying for you. This passage is not about parents and kids and school. It's about Jesus and his followers and the world that we're in. And the dangers we'll face in his prayers for, for you. Last week, the key word was glorify. As he prayed, Father, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. This week, the key word is keep. As he prays, Father, keep them. Keep them. Let's read this now. We'll really be studying verses 6 to 16, but I'll start reading in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He begins by describing those whom he's praying for, the object of this prayer, and it's his disciples. And as you look at verses 6 to 10, as he describes these disciples, there are descriptions that should be true of us as well if we're his disciples. Notice what he says in verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. He says, I've manifested your name. Manifested means to reveal to make known, to, to explain. And he says, I, in this time here, I have explained your name to them. This idea of name in the Bible, Old and New Testament, refers to God's character, his attributes, all about him, all of who he is. And Jesus says, I've been here and I have revealed you to them. These are your disciples. It's like what he says in John 14, 9. To one of his disciples. The disciple asked to see the Father. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? He says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I, I have revealed him to you, I have explained him to you. And so now, as he's praying, he says, Father, I've, I've done this. I've accomplished this mission. I have explained you to them, I've explained your name your very character, not just a general sense that there is a God, but this is what God is like. And then he says again that you have given them to me out of the world. This is a theme that we saw beginning in the first few verses last week, and it continues on over and over again. It says, verse 6 again, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. Skip down to verse 9. Those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
Verse 10, all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. It goes on and on to describe us as these gifts from the Father to the Son. That's, that's who we are. We'll come back to that in a moment. He says, these disciples have kept your word. I revealed you to them. They are yours. They have kept your word. They, they have come to know that Jesus is from God. Look at verse 7. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. His disciples, rather than those who are rejecting, saying that Jesus is from Satan or something else that some of the contemporaries were doing, he says, no, these have recognized that I'm from you. And they've believed that. And they've received my words, he says in verse 8. Friends, this is describing the disciples, and hopefully this is describing you. If you've trusted in Christ, you've recognized who Jesus is as from God. You've seen that he reveals the Father. You've, you've trusted in him in an ultimate saving sense. You wanted to keep his word. It's part of a description of discipleship. So he says, I'm praying for them, and by extension, it's praying for us. Verse 9 clarifies. He says, that's what I'm praying for, not the world. Look at verse 9. I ask on their behalf, these disciples, and us by extension, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. The next point will describe what's meant by this world, but just notice that contrast. He says, I'm praying not for the world, but for these disciples. Why? Why would he pray for them? Why would he pray for us? Gives us a reason. Look at verse 9. Again, he says, I ask on their behalf, not on behalf of the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He says, this is why I'm praying for them, because they're yours. They're yours. It's this theme that comes up over and over again. Verse 2, he says, these are the ones you have given me. Verse 6, these are the ones you gave me, and they were yours. Verse 9, those whom you have given me. Verse 24, those whom you have given me. You've heard people say, like, if you want somebody to get something, you've got to repeat it over and over again, right? Maybe you've heard the 7-Eleven principle. You can repeat something between 7 and 11 times so that they get it, right? If it's a toddler, it's maybe like 711 times, right? Just over and over and over again. And we see Jesus doing that exact thing here over and over and over. He's repeating the same idea that you, beloved, belong to God. You are His, you are his. So he's praying for you because you are, you are his. You might be at school and away from home, but you are, you are his. You might feel like you're a mess, but you're his. You might see the weakness in your parenting, but you are his. You might lose your job and you feel like your identity is tied up in your job, but it's not. Your identity is that you are, you are his. And so he prays and he prays for you. The reason he prays for you, and he prays specifically what he does, is because of the environment that we're in. And this environment that he also repeats, in fact, 18 times he repeats it, is this concept of the world. He says, I'm praying for my disciples because they are in the world. And so to understand why there is such an urgency of this prayer, we need to understand what is meant by, by the world. So there'll be a little bit of a, of a side channel here to explain this for a few moments because it explains why this prayer is keep them, keep them. The world is not 
It's referring to the globe. It's not referring to this place in which we live. It can be used that way, depending on context. But it's, it's referring to, I'm going to describe it in several different ways. It's referring to this system that is opposed to God in its thinking and behavior. It's, it's, it's people, and in fact, all, all people by default, in opposition to God. Sometimes actively, sometimes passively. But it's a system in opposition to God. It's described this way. John 7, verse 7, Jesus speaking here. It says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. It says, I, I confront it, and it hates me, because its deeds are evil. Later on, in John 15, which again would have been just earlier, this very same night that he's praying in John 17, says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, and by the way, that's the contrast that we see several times in here, says they're not of the world, which is why I'm praying. But if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. There's an opposition to the things of God that is baked in to the world. And yet that's not something that we look down on at those that are in the world with some kind of pride because the Bible also makes it clear that all people, including us, follow the ways of the world before coming to Christ. This is the default setting of all of humanity because of the sin that runs through us. And so because of that, all of us are in that mode. Ephesians 2, 1-2 says, And you, speaking to his Ephesian friends that were close, he says, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. He says, that was you. You were walking according to the course of the world. And friends, that was me and that was you at some point. Maybe you came to Christ when you were five years old. Maybe like me, you were a teen. Maybe it was older. Maybe you've not yet come to Christ. But apart from that, it says you would walk in the course of the world. It's true of all of us. It's our default kingdom. The world, furthermore, is under the power and influence of the evil one. Several passages make that point, that there's a real enemy, a real spiritual enemy, that has great influence in the world. 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In some way, he has influence and sway. First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 explains that a little more and says, in whose case the God of this world, which in this passage is talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. It says that not only is the world, it's our default kingdom, and apart from coming to Christ, we have an opposition to God, perhaps active, perhaps kind of more passive and subtle, but there's also a spiritual enemy who's trying to keep it that way. And yet even after we come to Christ, the Bible warns us about the influence of the world. So continuing to run down that theme, we see that believers are still in the world, but we must not be polluted by the world or love the world. Must not be polluted by it or love it. And so again, to run down some other passages, and I know we're hitting quite a few here, I just want you to see the breadth of this theme. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. It says this world that is in opposition to God, we've been rescued out of it if we're saved, if we've trusted in Christ, but we're still in it and we can be stained by it. We can be affected by it. I was listening recently to somebody describe how 
white-collar workers, people who, you know, by definition, kind of tend to wear nice white shirts to their job in really polluted cities will often have to bring a second white shirt to change into partway through the day. Because just by virtue of going about their day, their shirt gets stained just by the very air around them so that they need to change it. Basically what this is saying, that there's a danger of just being, as we're in the world, of just being stained by the world, of following after the world's patterns. It's the same thing that Romans 12.2 is talking about when it tells us not to be conformed to this world, to, to be pressed into its mold. We're not to be stained by it. We're not to be conformed to it. First John, we're not to love it. Do not love the things of the world. Uh, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the Son, or but is from the world. This tells us that when he says don't love the world, it's not saying you can't love Yellowstone National Park, right? Or you can't love getting together with friends or things that we think of as like part of this world. No, he says the world is in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful part of life. Do not love that. Do not pursue that. Do not let that kind of be that which catches you up because that would be to be conformed to the world. Now, next week, we're going to see that not only does he say for the Father to keep us, but he also sends us into the world. And so this world that we've described in this way can't be seen as this like enemy, I want to stay away, but as the mission field that we're sent into. But I wanted to see this description because then when we go back to our prayer, it makes sense then why Jesus says, Father, keep them, keep them. He says, I was with them, and when I was with them, I was keeping them, and yet I'm going to go to you. In fact, he speaks of it as such a done deal, even though he has not yet died and ascended, that he says it's as if it's already happened. He says, I've, I've, I've gone to you, but they are not. They are in this world, described in all the ways that we just saw there. And so he says, verse 11, keep them. He repeats it again in verse 15. Keep them. Keep them from the evil one. That's why I think that. Fear of a parent is such a, an appropriate analogy. As a parent is with their child, raising them, caring for them, they're with them, they can see them, they can take care of them, and then they, at some point, let them go to that sphere, and that prayer is, keep them. I can't. You keep them, Father. So in the same way, Jesus is saying, keep them. The word has the idea of to guard, to watch over. It was used different context, but in Acts chapter 12 of a guard watching over a jail, keeping them. It's used in Jude chapter 1 of believers. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. This is a description of believers. So Jesus so appropriately hears and prays, Father, keep them. Father, protect them. I protected them while I was on earth. Not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, re referring to Judas. Judas, who had a jersey but wasn't on the team, right? He was with them, but not, not really of them. Jesus knows the world will hate them. The world will hate us in some ways. It tells us not to be surprised by that. Do not be surprised if the world hates you. It tells us here as well. If the world is in opposition to God and we... Line up with him. There'll be times that that involves opposition to us. And we might be 
accused of being intolerant or bigoted or on the wrong side of history or narrow-minded. And friends, we must be careful that that's not objectively true in a biblical sense, but in a sense in which if we're being conformed to the image of Christ, and that is in contrast to the world, that we will sometimes be accused of, of being in the wrong. And we will be hated. And he says, don't be surprised. But notice he doesn't ask the Father to remove us from this world, but to keep us in the middle of it. God could, as soon as somebody trusts in Christ, he could just pull them out and bring them to heaven right away. And yet he doesn't. He leaves us there. And we'll see next week it's because he has a mission for us to do. But while we're here, he says, Father, keep them. Keep them. That can be a fearful thing. Even as we walk through this, it can feel kind of heavy. Like, oh, I'm just in a battlefield and I will be my whole life. And yet I want you to notice something right in the midst of this. After describing the danger that his people are in, asking the Father to keep them. Notice what he says in verse 13. If you close your Bibles, I encourage you to open it back up. Put your eyes there. I want you to see it. It says, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world. Why? So that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Yes, there is a dangerous situation we're in, and he says, Father, keep them. And yet, not because he wants us to be fearful, he wants us to be joyful even in the midst of this. He says that my joy may be full. He said the same thing. Uh, earlier passage is not up here, but in John 15, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So it's like we recognize the danger. We don't let that control our lives. We want to be full of joy even in the midst of that. All believers are in this spot and that they're in the world and there's some danger from the world. For us, that rarely means physical danger. It's more likely to just be the danger of just a corrupting influence, of pulling us away, of twisting our view of life and of the world and values. That's kind of the danger we're in. But we have to recognize that for other believers around the world, that danger is very palpable and physical and real, isn't it? And if you've been following the news the last couple of weeks and you've been watching the, the quick way in which the Taliban has swept over Afghanistan, one part of that story is how are believers there, how are Christians there going to be affected? Earlier this summer, there were a group of believers that in, in Afghanistan that made the bold step to officially register as followers of Christ. It's illegal, even, even over the last two decades without Taliban rules, it's illegal to convert from Islam to Christianity there. But the church has been growing. In fact, I heard it's one of the fastest growing places in the world. Not a lot of people, but as it doubles and doubles and doubles, it's growing quickly. And yet they hadn't officially registered. But they decided that for the sake of the generations to come, they should, they should do this. They should officially declare they're followers of Christ. And now... Their name is on a database that is in the hands of, of the Taliban. And they're recognizing that it could be a much more dangerous place even than it was. I was reading about one American pastor who was there this whole last two weeks as this has been unfolding and, and was literally gathering with Afghan believers 
for a little retreat in Afghanistan while, while this is happening. And he described how when they learned that the Afghan president had officially resigned and the Taliban was officially in control, they were actually in the middle of a service and they were singing Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, when somebody came up and whispered into his ear that, that this is what's happened. And this is a song that perhaps you've sung many times if you've grown up in a church environment. This is one of the later verses, but he describes what it was like to be gathered with these believers who persecution is about to be very real and very present, and yet they continue to sing, and he's got these words, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Well, we, we sing that, and it's maybe kind of metaphorical, right? For them, it was not, not metaphorical. It's, it's, it's likely that they may live this out. They may not. The Lord may intervene in some way, but, but it could be very real. And yet, this is still their hope. Here's why I bring this up. If we take this passage where Jesus says, keep them, to mean that God will always protect his people physically, then that prayer may fall flat. Right? The believers are, are killed. The, our Afghan brothers and sisters in Christ may be. And, and yet, keep, I think, doesn't mean prevent all physical harm or even loss of life, but Father, keep them close to you. Even as all of this unfolds around them, keep them close to you. Friends, it's the same as we're thinking of people we know and love that are going through physical suffering. And we say, Father, keep them. God may preserve their life physically, but it may just be that he's going to draw them near and hold them close to the very end where he walks into their presence. It's a prayer. Father, keep them. How do we apply this? What do we do with this rich prayer? Let me give you a few things. Know whose you are. And I say that because that's what he repeats over and over again. And he prayed this in the ears of his disciples. It was recorded and preserved for us so that you could hear this, where he says, you are his. If you've trusted in Christ, if you're one of these disciples, you're one of his, you are his. And I don't know what... The school year might hold for you. Maybe you're a freshman stepping into this great unknown and it's scary, but if you know Christ, you are, you are his. Maybe you're in the midst of personal hardship in some way, but you are his. Come back to that truth over and over again. Second, this can be a model for us to know how to pray. As you think of people you love, people you care about, it's appropriate to pray this for them, for their spiritual protection. You say, I don't, know how to, I don't know what to pray for my kids. Father, keep them. I don't know what to pray for these people that are, that are away, these people that are, that are suffering. That can be a prayer. Keep them, following the same model. And then last, be aware of the influence and dangers of the world. If, if it was so critical that Jesus devoted this huge chunk at the end of his earthly life to pray for you to be kept in the midst of the world, how dare we be naive about the risks of the world? How dare we not take seriously when he warns us about being stained by the world, conformed to the world, loving the world? 
He took it seriously. We ought to as well, not fearfully, not in a way that is removed from joy, but honestly. Next week, we'll see, though, that it's not merely keep us in the midst of the world, but send us to the world. And so that's what we'll see next time. Let's pray.